So before getting into Taisho today, I just thought maybe um, we would, I would see if anybody has any questions or any anything on their mind as far as practice goes. We could take a few minutes and do that. And if not, then we'll go into talk. Um, sometimes when I'm doing zazen, it's very hard to stay awake. So what are some ways to do with fire? Coffee? <laughs> Tea? Good sleep? Are you sleeping well? I think we need more sleep than we think. Uh, a lot of sleepiness in zazen is not true sleepiness. It's not true tiredness. It's resistance from the ego. It's uh, it's resistance as far as I don't want to sit here and still the mind. And so, what suddenly is tiredness evaporates during kinhin or after sitting. We're wide awake and. You know, ready to meet the rest of the day. So the way to work with that, of course, is just to uh, struggle through it. Uh, one teacher told me that if when you're tired, that's your practice. Just be tired. Uh, no, no need to really fight, because then that's just the um, ego fighting it. Uh, but with that said, the other thing you can do is to blink your eyes wide open when you're sitting there. You know, let the more light in into the uh, iris or whatever part of the eye needs to get that light to pupil or whatever to, to give the signal to wake up. And um, during keening, you can also go to the bathroom and splash cold water on your face. So uh, Kaplan Roshi said when he was in Japan, he would often go and fill up a basin with cold water and dunk his whole head underwater <coughs> and open his eyes so that, whew, you know, the shock of it all would wake him up. Or an interrogation stick. <laughs> yeah. That's right. I'll wake you up. Yeah. We haven't been using it here. Uh, I just, uh, I keep wanting to, but then I, I want people to come back, too. So. <laughs> With the sleepiness. Yeah. Yeah. And Sashin will use the stick. In retreats, we'll use the encouragement stick as a way to stay awake. Uh, so, it's, it's great. It's a great tool. It wakes you up. It does. It does. It does. And it doesn't hurt. For those who haven't tried it, it does not hurt. It's like acting pressure. It's just... Yeah. Anything else on people's minds? Kind of with that more resistance idea is after the, the Zazenkai, I did not want to sit at all to sleep. Uh-huh. Like it was really hard to actually stick to my normal routine. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, routines are called routines because we do them whether we like it or not. And we have to begin to approach Zazen um, with, in two simultaneous ways. One is to um, appreciate it when we do it and to enjoy it, but also to just do it when we don't enjoy it. And 
uh, just like brushing our teeth, we just have to get in the habit of doing it every day, twice a day, um, without thinking about it. So that's another level of challenge, is to not subject your zazen to the whims of I want to or I don't want to. And that becomes a great uh, gate of practice. It shouldn't be in the realm of of wanting. But (laughs) I know what it feels like. (laughs) Okay. So we're going to take up a case today. Um, And this case came up for me in the midst of thinking about lineage uh, with Jukai coming up. I've been working with our lineage, um, which is the teachers that have come before us. And this is case number six of the Mulan Khan, the Buddha holds up a flower. The case reads like this. Once when the world honored one, who is the Buddha, by the way, in ancient times, was on Vulture Peak, he held up a flower before the assembly of monks. At this, all of, all of them were silent. The venerable Mahakashapa alone broke into a smile. The world-honored one said, I have the all-pervading eye of the true Dharma, the secret heart of incomparable nirvana, the true aspect of formless form. It does not rely on letters and is transmitted outside the scriptures. I now hand it on to Mahakashapa. So that's the case. Muman, who is the compiler of this book of koans, um, added a commentary in verse. And I'll just read the commentary today. So he says about this case, Golden-faced Gotama is certainly outrageous. He turns the noble into the lowly and sells dog flesh advertised as mutton, though with some genius. However, supposing that at the time all the monks had smiled, how would this all-including eye of the true Dharma have been handed on? Or again, if Mahakashapa had not smiled, how could he have entrusted, been entrusted with it? If you say that the true Dharma can be handed on, the golden-faced old man with his loud voice deceived the simple villagers. If you say it can't be transmitted, why did the Buddha say that he handed it on to Mahakashapa? Are you thoroughly confused right now? Um, it's a lot to take in, so we'll take it piece by piece. So this is the first story of transmission in our uh, lineage, where um, the Buddha hands on the teaching to Mahakashapa his first uh, Dharma heir, so to speak. Um, And most historians would point out that this story is most likely apocryphal. It probably never happened in in the way it's described. In fact, the first time this appeared in the literature that I can tell, uh, according to Robert Aiken Roshi, is during the Song Dynasty of China. So the Chinese had a very creative way of using... These, these stories. 
And even though it may be uh, untrue historically, uh, most stories, as we know, have some truth in them that we have to dig up or discover. And part of what this story is telling us, showing us, is the importance of lineage. So lineage is, in our tradition, is the teachers that have come before us, as I said, um, that the teaching is passed down from teacher to student in our, in our lineage. And I think that as Western Buddhists, we have uh, more of a challenge in terms of lineage because, well, for one thing, as Americans, our country is only 250 years old, so we don't, I don't think, have an appreciation of history that many other places do, uh, especially China, who has, I think, the longest uh, continuous historical, um, how would you say, <clears throat> country, the longest country in existence. We're also, as Americans, much more future-oriented than past-oriented. So I think that also presents a challenge for us when we begin to think of teachers of the past. But in most Zen centers, in most temples, um, the ancestors in the Dharma are, is, are chanted every day or almost every day. And in our chant book, we, you'll find if you flip through there, there is the ancestral line where we do chant all the names of the ancestors. And so in that lineage, it starts with the six mythic Buddhas that appeared before Shakyamuni. So there were six Buddhas, we're told, that go back many kalpas, and then there was Shakyamuni, and of course he handed the Dharma on to Mahakashapa, who then passed it to Ananda, and then Shanavasa, uh, and so on and so forth, through India to China. It splits, you know, to Tibet and different lineages and things, but in our lineage goes through China to Japan, and then Japan to the United States. And um, it's kind of like a family tree. And there are, uh, as far as I can tell, when I counted on our lineage chart, 86 generations of teachers tracing from my teacher all the way back to uh, the Buddha. Now, it's important to also just nod to the fact that there have been breaks in this lineage. It's not some, we, we're not uh, under any illusions that this is a flawless system, uh, but um, but it is pretty um, uh, a pretty good system as far as you know teaching being passed from student to teacher or teacher to student. It's not in our tradition. It's not passed down through colleges or through degrees or through. Uh, teaching authority is not given through committee or any kind of governing body or licensing body, although there is some um, a push towards that in this country because of some of the misdeeds of teachers. Uh, a lot of uh, 
what people are looking towards as solutions is to uh, make it more of a, an accreditation process. Um, I think this is probably not going to work. Um, but, but that's what Americans do is we want to we, we, we we legislate everything into, you know, because when something bad happens, we go, okay, well, let's make a rule for it. Let's make a law for it. And I, I understand that impulse, but um, it, it, it has some merit to it. But um, certainly there's a lot of downfalls to that, especially in terms of authority in Zen teaching. So the model that we have in Zen is more of an apprenticeship model. So what happens is over years and years, you just learn the teachings, you just pick them up through um, absorption, through being around long enough. And um, um, it can be challenging in the West because there's really no sense of an endpoint. It's not like we have a curriculum and say, okay, I'm going to start here and then I'm going to take this class and that class and that class and you know, in 2020, I'm going to graduate. Um, there's none of that curriculum or program of study, so it can lead um, us in the West to be a little bit confused about where we are in terms of our learning with Zen. But it also can be challenging to our sense of, this idea of lineage can be challenging to our sense of individuality. Because some of us uh, struggle with letting go of this sense of I, of course. This, um, that we have a real, talking about resistance, that we were just talking about a few minutes ago, we have a, a resistance um, to seeking help from other people a lot of the time. You know, this notion, I don't really need somebody's guidance. I don't really need their help. I've got this on my own. Especially with online resources, I think this is becoming more prevalent where people just they want to learn something they just watch a youtube video and um you watch enough youtube videos and you're considered an expert i suppose um, but one of the challenges i believe that buddhism does face in this country is the onslaught of the individual the onslaught of the rugged individual in america and um we don't really put an emphasis on the people that have come before us like they do in Asian cultures. Now, a couple of the nuts and bolts, this is somewhat educational of a talk, but um, some of the nuts and bolts of our lineage is there's two kind of major components. One is the priest lineage. So there's um, people like myself um, have ordained as priests, and there's this lineage that goes on um, so you can you can be made a full priest and then uh, pass that lineage down. A priest is somebody who just feels an affinity for the forms of Zen practice as we've inherited them. Um, and uh, there's also a commitment involved with that, of course. As my teacher said, it's spending, basically to be a priest is to spend your, uh, your life stream in service of the Dharma. Um, but there's also the, aside from being a priest, there's also the teaching lineage of the koans that we have. And so when somebody has mastered the koan system um, over many years, uh, that also can be a way for a layperson too. It doesn't have to be a priest, it can be a teacher. If they've gone through all the koans and they have an affinity with teaching, guiding others, then they can also 
uh, pass that along and from generation to generation. So a big part of why ancestry and lineage and transmission is so important is that it shows us that we're not simply isolated individuals, that we are connected in real and meaningful ways. Um, it's hard to see that connection oftentimes, but, but it's there. Another reason that White emphasized lineage is this idea of practicing for others. That we feel in Zen that it's important to continue the teaching beyond our own lifetime. That we want to make sure that it continues so that the next generation can pick it up and practice it. And so really the job of a teacher is to make sure that that happens in at least one individual to make sure it gets passed along um, so that it doesn't die out. So I think it's, um, well, and this is what humans do anyway, right, is, is we pass along our knowledge to our next generation. And hopefully in passing that knowledge along, um, we learn and get better as uh, a, really as a species. And I, I think it's easy when we look around at our current world situation to really get pessimistic about it, given the political climate and uh, environmental climate. Um, but I, I would argue that overall, if you look statistically, um, we're, we are actually getting better as a species. There, it's hard to see the long view, but... Uh, there's less violence, there, there's less uh, lower mortality rates, there's um, less starvation, um, more access to resources, uh, etc. And, and if, you know, obviously we have a long way to go, but as, as a human species, uh, we're doing okay, <laughs> other than the planet. I, I don't know what's going to happen with that, but... Um, if we can make it, as one of my friends says, who's an astrophysicist, if we can... If we can make it through the next 200 years, we'll be fine. <laughs> but he's quite serious because we have this, you know, this environmental and uh, energy problem. So, so if we can make it past that bottleneck without destroying ourselves uh, or destroying the planet, we'll be okay. And that's a real question whether we'll do that or not. So in terms of the Dharma, I think this is also true as far as passing down our knowledge. I think we are getting better at, uh, teachers are getting better at making the Dharma more accessible to people, more available to, uh, more accessible to diverse populations, um, and taking time to really, uh, without watering it down, making sure that it's um, can be practiced by people not just from the, the traditional cultures it came from. So I think we're getting better at that as well. When I was thinking about this koan, the Buddha, I, uh, I've said this here before. I, it, when the Buddha, when he had his great awakening, he sat there apparently for a while 
wondering if anybody would even understand what he was, what his experience was. And he was very tempted to not teach because he didn't think anybody would get it. He didn't think anybody would understand. Um, but at some point, he decided that he needed to try. And I wonder if part of the reason that he decided to do that was because of his own struggle. The Buddha, before his awakening, spent many years on the search, and he tried all of the different traditions available to him at the time in India. So he had a lot of teachers, but none of them pointed him in the way, in the direction that he needed to go. And so I wonder if the Buddha, uh, part of the reason he wanted to teach was because he wanted to make it easier for the next generation. He wanted to make it clearer. And so, so we fast forward to this scene described in the case. And it says, once when, when the Buddha uh, was on Vulture Peak, he held up a flower. Before, or he, he held up a flower before the assembly of monks. And at this, all were silent. Vulture Peak, by the way, is in northern India. It's about 13 hours drive from Nepal, the border of Nepal, I believe. And um, it was given its name because the rock, if you look at pictures of it, the rock, Vulture Peak, at the top, it looks like a vulture with its wings folded in. And the Buddha apparently taught most of his discourses at Vulture Peak. And he taught for 45 years. And this is one of his favorite places to go. So he, he taught for 45 years and he gathered more and more people around him. And so when I imagine the scene, I imagine that the Buddha is talking with a great number of people or a gathering. He's not talking. So he held up the flower and all were silent. In Zen, we, we talk about different kinds of silence. And so one of the questions for this case is, what kind of silence was going on? You can think of all the different kinds of silence. There's the silence of anticipation, the silence of confusion. There's, uh, or being dumbfounded. Um, there's a silence of appreciation. There's the silence of sitting when there's no thought in the mind. There's nothing to say. There's nothing going on in our meditation. Silence is becoming more of a rarity these days. I actually looked it up. I wanted to see if anybody had studied this, and of course somebody has, looking for places in the world where there is true silence, meaning that there's no human noise. And there are, you would think that like Antarctica would be a place of silence, but it turns out actually that there's a lot of noise there. Um, 
airplanes constantly flying, research planes always flying across, and because it's so barren, you can hear the noise. But they have identified places that there are still pockets of uh, places around the world where there's very, very, very little human noise. True silence is the medicine of Zen practice. And so, while there are fewer spots uh, than where we can find silence, we um, we need to find it. And even when we do, when even when we find a spot, say even the zendo, where we come after a week of hard work and we sit, even though it's silent somewhat, we, we still have to contend with the, even though there may be very little noise outside, we have to contend with the internal noise. And that's, of course, the biggest obstacle to silence. During my years of Zen practice in Rochester during Sishin, the week-long intensives, um, it's a city center. And so it's, there are two houses that are put together. And the Zendo is in the living, what was the living room, very big living room of this one house. And the front door of the house is where the altar is. Now there's no door there anymore. It's all been modified. And during Sashin, it happened more than a few times where people would walk down the city sidewalk and they would sit down on the front steps of the Zendo house, having no idea that there was a Zendo right there. And they would just begin a conversation, like two people would start talking about something. And little did they know that 55 or 60 people were behind just feet away from them, <laughs> listening <laughs> intently to every word that they were that they were saying, and uh, it was sometimes a very very good challenge to keep it together <laughs> without bursting into laughter at some of the conversations you would hear. One person who wasn't um, doing so well. Um, emotionally sat down one time on the steps and serenaded us. They knew we were having a retreat and they serenaded us with a song, a Beatles song, I believe, uh, Let It Let It Be. <laughs> I think he was trying to tell us something. But aside from those conversations, it was also challenging because there was always construction, there was always uh, the sidewalks being dug up or trees planted by the city workers or garbage trucks. So so in those situations, it was, uh, it was imperative that we found a silence that was apart from the external silence. So back to our story. The Buddha held up a flower and all were silent. The venerable Mahakashapa, or Kashapa for short, alone broke into a smile. So when, Mah when Mahakashapa smiled, what happened? What happened? Did he have some thought that popped into his head? Maybe a good joke, you know, suddenly like came in. 
you could say that his smile was a smile of recognition. A, a smile um, of, of, well, of recognition. The, when I was considering this case, one of, the, one of the things that came up for me is, why is it that one day we're listening to his songs, for example, and it just kind of goes in one ear and out the other. And yet, another time when we listen to it, it really hits us, really strikes us. Or why is it that one day we're taking a walk or a hike and a, a place perhaps that we've hiked time and time again, hundreds of times, why is it that one day this old tree trunk or something stands out to us that we, that, oh, it's almost like we've never seen it before, right? <clears throat> so you can be sure that while each of, well, the other thing, when in Zen we, we recognize really that anything can be a, a wake-up call. Anything can stand out to us at a certain time. Um, especially in terms of awakening. Um, when, uh, when Tozan, great Zen master Tozan, was sweeping, sweeping um, the walk one day, a, a pebble got caught in his broom and, and hit a piece of bamboo and made a talk. And at that, he had an awakening experience. Um, or or um, Hakuin. Hakuin, apparently, he's, according to his own writing, had an awakening experience when he walked by and saw an old woman peeing off the deck. <laughs> The Buddha, the Buddha, sitting after seven days, looked up in the morning and saw Venus in the sky. That's what was the, the factor that broke open his mind. So what is in common with all these things? All the circumstances are different, but there's something in common say that their minds were silent, their minds were open, their minds were aware, they were receptive in a sense. And in this way you can be sure that uh, Mahakashapa, while he had seen hundreds and hundreds probably of flowers before this one, there was something different about this flower. You see, there was something different. What was it? Was it more beautiful or more colorful? When people come to Sashin, sometimes afterwards, they'll beg for or ask for the, the recipes to some of the meals that they had in retreat. And they'll, 
they'll say, oh, it's tasted so good. Can I get that recipe? Right? And then they go home and then they make it. And, it, and they go, it doesn't taste the same. It didn't taste the same. Yeah, because you're missing one crucial ingredient. Days and days of sitting. Right? Silence. Openness. Receptiveness. The Venerable Kashapa broke into a smile. The world-honored one said, I have the all-pervading eye of the true Dharma, the secret heart of incomparable nirvana, the true aspect of formless form, it does not rely on letters and is transmitted outside the scriptures. I now hand it on to Mahakashapa. It, it sounds like the Buddha is approving of Kashapa's understanding. And this is very common. When people begin koan practice, they, they believe that in the beginning, they believe that there's really no right or wrong. They'll say things like, how can you tell me my answer is wrong, you know, to a koan? How can you say it's wrong? Isn't, isn't my truth what's most important here? Well, yes and, and, and no. Certainly each one of us is unique. And yet there's something that we all share that's in common that each koan is trying to get us to see. And so in that way, we're, we're, when, when, when somebody presents a koan, their answer to a koan, it can be off because we're trying, not to, we're trying to get at this level that is, that is below the individual. It is beyond the individual personality and likes and dislikes and um, individual expression. So the Buddha approves Kashapa's understanding. But the case says um, he passed on something. He, he says, he, he now, I now pass it on to Kashapa. So one of the questions in working on this case is, what was passed on to Kashapa? What was passed on to him? What did the Buddha transmit to him? The, he says, you know, he, the Buddha, after the Mahakashapa smiled, he said, I have the all-pervading eye of the true Dharma, da-da-da-da-da, you know, it goes on, you know, this aspect of formless form, and it's transmitted outside the scriptures, I now hand it on to Mahakashapa. Muman, in his commentary, he takes on his usual iconoclastic tone, and he says, he says, golden face Gotama is certainly outrageous. So, of course, he's referring to the Buddha when he says golden face Gotama. He turns the lowly, the noble into the lowly and sells dog flesh, advertises mutton. In other words, he's saying this is an outrage. Of course there's nothing that's passed on. What could be passed on? What is there to pass on? Uh, 
so on one level, you could say that, yeah, there is nothing to transmit in Zen. And yet, of course, there's always that and yet. And yet, there is. People who believe uh, they understand Zen uh, that actually don't, they wonder uh, what's the purpose of, say, ritual or ceremony or form. Isn't it all empty anyway? You know, isn't it all emptiness? So what does it matter, these forms that we have? Well, it is all empty, but not in the way we might imagine. Um, when we have our first insight into formlessness, what we realize is that things are not, as the Buddha said, things are not as they appear, but nor are they otherwise. Nor are they otherwise. Everything is different in a sense, but absolutely nothing is different in another sense. We need the forms because we live in a society with rules and laws, and we do need the people's approval. We do crave people's we live in the context of relationships, and, and so we do need recognition. So when the, Buddhas, when the Buddha recognized Mahakashapa and says, I transmit the Dharma to Mahakashapa, he's recognizing his understanding. So going back to this idea of lineage just before we end, when Kashapa, when he smiled, you could say he understood exactly what the Buddha understood. He, he, he at that point, received mind-to-mind transmission. And then later, Ananda understood exactly what Mahakashapa understood and what the Buddha understood. And then later, and then later, teacher after teacher after teacher. And so when we acknowledge uh, the lineage, that's what we're acknowledging is the, the common, the commonality to us all. The thread, so to speak, that's woven through each one of us that ties us all together. And when we're, we're recognizing also that we're all a part of a lineage, this greater family. Not simply of Zen Buddhists, but really this lineage of birds and candles and computers and cars. greater lineage and this is really the point this is really the point that this is what Mahakashapa realized when he smiled at the flower and the point of lineage is that what we realize is that nothing is left out there is nothing that is not a part of our family 
So that's what we have to realize when we practice, is that it is one big family. So, uh, just about out of time. I just saw that it's 12, almost 12 o'clock exactly. But I do want to take just a few minutes and see if anybody has any questions or comments, anything to add to it. And then after that, we'll stop and recite the four vows. I have a question. It might be like an unfair, fair question. <laughs> <laughs> You're certain.